Hello and welcome to Genetically Speaking. In our first season, we delved into the careers of our members within the American Society of Human Genetics. We had great conversations with genetic counselors, researchers, educators, clinicians, and more. We were able to explore their unique journeys and the impact they've made in the world of human genetics and genomics. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome and we're glad to have you here. For our repeat listeners, welcome back. I hope you hear something new that stays with you. Thanks for joining us in revisiting Season 1 of Genetically Speaking. Welcome to the ASHG Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Gunter, and today I'm joined by Dr. Katrina Goddard. Thank you very much for joining us today. So can you tell us a little bit about your what you're doing right now and where you're located? Yeah, I'm a genetic epidemiologist, and I'm at Kaiser Permanente in Portland, Oregon. Um, and I am really interested in taking the discoveries that are coming out of our field and trying to move them into clinical practice. And we bonded a little because you spent some time in Cleveland. I spent some time in Cleveland. Yes. And we talked about thunder snow. It's all good. <laughs> Hopefully Portland is less on the snow. Less thunder snow. <laughs> so um, it, we have a lot of uh, trainees who are very interested in industry. I'm making quotation marks. Mm -hmm. So that's where you work, right? So tell us a little bit about, do you consider that industry? How did you get into that? How can everyone get into that? We get a lot of questions about that. Yeah, so um, actually, I would say that the Kaiser Research Center is very much more on an academic model. And so our research is not funded by Kaiser. Um, I write grant proposals just like everyone else um, to federal agencies, um, foundations. Um, some of our researchers do work with industry sponsors. But I think the main difference for me about working for a nonprofit uh, research organization is that we focus solely on research. We're not engaged with teaching. Um, I'm not a clinician, so I get to spend 100% of my time doing research, which is what I love. Um, as you mentioned, before I went to Kaiser, I was at Case Western um, Reserve University on faculty, and so I did get to experience a little bit of that um, feeling like my time was spread very thin across all of the expectations of faculty in the academic department. So um, I really enjoy being in a place where I can really focus on what I love. That being said, I do also have an affiliate academic appointment with Oregon Health Sciences University. So I do get to interact with students um, and do a few lectures a year go up for grand rounds and still kind of retain that connection to the university. And you still get to enjoy applying for grants. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you, I know you're a genetic epidemiologist. Yes. Right. So how did you decide to, what appealed to you about that career? Yeah, so it was um, actually not planned exactly <laughs> to go into that field. And my undergraduate degree is in molecular biology, and my PhD is in biostatistics from the University of Washington. And when I started my PhD program, um, I got to know my mentor, Ellen Weissman, and Ellen, she was working in this really fascinating field of human genetics um, at a time where um, things were really starting to pick up for the field, like the CF gene had just been identified, Huntington's disease gene had just been identified, 
the field was really on the verge of taking off. And um, I kind of feel like I got him at the ground level in graduate school. That's so great. Yeah, it was amazing. And so that it sounds like your work there with statistics led you towards thinking about epidemiology. Exactly. Yeah. And you, you um, were you attracted by the public health aspects of that or? Yeah, I really always enjoyed um, how doing work that impacts people. And um, so when I was on faculty at Case, Lester and I also went through a little bit of a career transition there I was um, initially doing a lot of work doing data analysis, um, GWAS studies, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but I actually started working with the ethics department there that had a project there and um, they were really looking at consumer genetics, which was this emerging thing happening at the time. And that led me to a mid-career fellowship at the CDC working with Malene Glory and um, really starting to think about public health genomics at that point more broadly um, than trying to make these new discoveries. So it was a lot of different things that led to that <laughs> career decision. But I think what has always motivated me um, is that our work really has impact on people. And I think that's so important because yeah. when you're in the lab, it's really hard to, to see that. To make that thing. nice sign. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's nice to be able to see that. And you don't have to some patience, right? Because right. to be able to do that, you feel like you're making recommendations out of this. That exactly. Yeah. Our work leads to um, the evidence needed to make those recommendations. Yes. And that's important. Yes. So, so um, you mentioned uh, direct-to-consumer genetics. I know they yes. have done some work in that. So um, how do you see that in the future since you're on the front lines kind of uh -huh. in, that, in that interesting front? How do you see that being integrated into healthcare in the future? Yeah, I think there's starting to be more of a blurring of the lines between the um, direct-to-consumer products and some of the clinical products with some of the same labs offering the tests in both venues. So it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Um, and definitely the results then are actually relevant to clinical care sometimes. And I think the biggest challenge for the healthcare system is being able to figure out when is this relevant information and when is it not relevant information. And so trying to uh, really help our systems um, develop a plan for integrating the results that do make sense and helping patients understand when that doesn't make sense to bring it into their medical record. So, for example, the test is being promoted on Twitter right now to tell you what kind of wine to drink. That probably doesn't make sense. Exactly. You're saying yes. <laughs> so, so it's, it is, uh, that's what I wanted to ask. It's such a it's becoming such a wild west out there. It, yes. you know, it must be just always very interesting to be working with. <laughs> yes. 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 So, and do you are you seeing a how can we as geneticists, maybe those of us who aren't physicians, how can we best work with health practitioners to help them make those decisions? Yeah, I think um, talking to people and uh, really understanding their experience on the front line, um, what is going on in primary care, what is going on in the medical genetics department. Um, since I moved to Kaiser, I worked very closely with um, the clinical geneticists there 
And uh, really, uh, they are a lot of my motivation for the research programs that um, we propose because we're trying to solve problems that really matter to the healthcare system. So you really need to have that relationship and need to understand what their concerns are in order to have relevant research programs. Absolutely. I think that's so important. So yeah, let's step back a little bit in your career. So you yes. talked about um, uh, being getting your PhD and, and getting your postdoc. And uh, a theme that's come up in talking to a number of people for the podcast is talking about um, the importance of mentoring. Yeah. So can you talk about how that was important to you and what you think has worked best? Yeah, I want to um, talk about a really early example, which was um, in high school, actually, um, that when I was a high school student, I actually wanted to be a musician. I did not want to go into science, and I could not understand why I needed to take a science class to graduate from high school because it was completely irrelevant to what I wanted to do. And um but of course, it was a requirement. So I decided to take biology, which was what I thought the easiest yes. science. <laughs> and um, I completely became fascinated with it. I just fell in love with it. Um, that teacher was amazing and really um, changed my life. And um, there was also a program for high school students in the Portland, Oregon area called Saturday Academy. And uh, there was a researcher at Oregon called Sciences University um, who opened up her lab to high school students. Um, she taught a class that was in the evenings called Genetic Engineering. And we went in and actually got to um, work with bacteria in her lab. And, you know, just Seeing a female scientist yep. um, who had children, it was really eye-opening to me and amazing to know this is possible. You know, you can be a scientist, you can be a woman, you can have children. It is a possibility. It, it's, it is a sad statement. <laughs> but I agree. I've done science night from my uh, first elementary and then middle school, and I get the same thing from kids and moms all the time who come up and say, I'm so glad you're here so our kids can see that. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's really important. So then uh, from there, it sounds like you then went into genetic epidemiology. So you mentioned wanting to be a musician. What else do you do outside of lab? <laughs> if you can have an time outside yeah. Um, what I, instrument was this? I played the flute and the like Lizzo and the piano. Yeah, those are my instruments. I only play the piano still. Um, I don't really like to have an audience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I play it with headphones on. But um, yeah, I also really like to do crafts. Um, and so that's something I enjoy: scrapbooking. Yeah. Yeah, just making so we'll be creative. Yeah, right. And yeah, think a different about kind of creativity. Yeah, exactly. Which is really important to keep going and, and doing all this stuff. So, um, what do you think? We we're we're also asking uh, people if you were starting over and going into genetics now, is there an area that you are really excited about that maybe you're not doing now, but that which you would really look into as a trainee? Oh boy! I know. <laughs> yeah, this out of left field. One time, like, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's still so much to do um, in this field, but I think what um, is really interesting me right now is um, that some of these discoveries that were made 20, 30 years ago 
um, to understand what is the underlying genetic basis of this disease. We're starting to really be able to impact therapies um, and trying to understand when do these therapies work and uh, what's effective and some of the gene therapy that's coming out. I think it's um, really amazing how far the field has come in that time frame. Yeah, the stuff that when we were in high school and college, maybe we were just hearing about the possibility that you guys Alzheimer's. I never would have believed this was going to happen. Yes. Yes. Well, the genetics, right? Yeah, so that's great. So that's people, you're interested in seeing where we can go in the future, it sounds yes. like, and, and, and making sure that we uh, are there any other classes that you would recommend that trainees get training? I mean, suggested statistics. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's what I tell my child all the time. Statistics or computation. Learn how to. So, yeah, I think the thing I really overlooked in my training was writing and how much time we spend as scientists communicating. Um, as an editor, I'm totally in favor of you. Yeah, it was absolutely a skill that I developed later in my career. Um, I really appreciate the patience of uh, my PhD mentor, Ellen Weissman, who really taught me a lot about writing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the editors that I work with now, and um, that's just something that um, I didn't enjoy. And so learning how to get yourself started is uh, the hardest part. <laughs> to spit some words down. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. And once there, did you take any class or can you recommend any books or, or methods that really helped you on your writing journey other than mentors you were writing? And here, uh, um, not sure I can recommend books, but I think just in terms of getting started, like just get something on the paper. And then once you have something down, then you can think about the organization second or the particular words that you're using. Um, don't let those things become barriers to you to just getting started. And the other trick I was taught at the very beginning was just make yourself sit down for 10 minutes. And if you are done and you would have three minutes that's right yes after 10 minutes if you still don't want to do it then you know fine get up and walk away but oftentimes you'll find um that you can keep going yeah get it started and that and i think also something that helped me was um i was reluctant to ask people for copies of their grants or early management because i didn't think they'd want to share but people are usually like yeah sure right yeah that's fine so I think that has helped me a lot is asking people if you could see theirs, right? And especially the ones that failed, right? And and have an idea. Yeah. And I think um, in terms of grant writing in particular, having people read your proposal who are not directly related to your work, because the reality is the people on study section probably don't do exactly what I do either. And yeah, so, yeah. so having that eye of someone with a little bit of a broader perspective, um, they can help you understand where they're getting lost and um, where you're not being unclear because you're so deep in this topic that you can't even recognize um, what others don't understand. Right. Everybody knows that. Yes. Everybody knows this thing, right? So, yes. Do you have a go-to grant writing playlist? Do you have any recommendations for 
songs for people for grant writing. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I am not one. We can have that kind of surprise. So, silence. It's silence. Yes. Yeah, silence. Silence. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I've downloaded some ambient me too. Sometimes helps or all that kind of stuff. So, so one last question I wanted to ask you about is: you just started a large study for um, engaging 150 to 200,000 people and uh, participating in a cancer research study. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And that's such a huge challenge. Yeah. So this is obviously a collaboration with lots of different groups across the country, and um, it's funded by MCI. And um, it's really trying to think about early detection of cancer. So we want to identify individuals before they have developed cancer. And then we're going to be collecting samples and data and information about them over 10 years. Um, and some of them will develop cancer over that time frame. And so we'll have this amazing collection of information um, before they develop cancer at various time points. And then also after they develop cancer, we'll have access to the tissue samples as well as the medical record information that happens to them. Uh, NCI, of course, wants to be very collaborative with this cohort and make this a resource for the scientific community. Um, and I think the biggest challenge for me um, as a scientist around this is going to be thinking about retention and how do you keep study participants engaged over 10 years um, or maybe even longer, who knows? Um, yeah, that's going to be um, something a little bit new compared to some of my past research that I'm really excited about. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. How do you keep updated? That's a challenge that we're dealing with because people move and they move around. I mean, I was just their health, so they're interested. That's right. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows someone who's had cancer. Yeah, and I think really trying to understand this as an investment for the future um, and really going to help people understand the causes of cancer and how to detect it early, those sorts of things hopefully will be motivating. And that's great because that's also part of what you wanted to get insights to do, right? It's these questions. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Katrina Goddard, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Genetically Speaking. Join us again next week for another episode. Mm-hmm.